So we're now talking about the third foundation of mindfulness. And this third foundation is also pretty amazing. It's in many ways the subtlest of the four. And I know it's weird that you can sit up here and read because I don't, I, I probably should use, I don't quite know how to handle that. So you can, if that works for you, some people say it works for you. I'm sort of embarrassed and I try not to just read, I try to offer, but it's a mix. Anyway, this third foundation, it's the most subtle because for most, it's mind. And for most of us, when you get right down to it, that's where we live. You know, we live in mind. And when we're practicing, you know, Vedas come up, different thoughts and these sort of objects of mind come up. But underlying it all is just our mind. And we live in there. And we think it's us. And that's why it's so important to be mindful of it. It gets down to our very sense of self-identity. And, you know, we can sort of, most people can... They might, on some levels, think they're body, because a lot of people think they are. But if you really get down to a conversation, they know they're not, you know, because, yeah, it gets older, and, yeah, I broke my leg, I'm still me, and all that kind of stuff. But this gets so subtle. People don't know this. People think, oh, I'm mind. Even like, great, what is it, Descartes? I think, therefore, I am. You know, conventionally speaking, maybe. Yeah, okay, but ultimately speaking, uh, not so much. So it's really powerful to cultivate mindfulness in this area. And, you know, mind is like, it's like a fish in water. Like we don't, we can't, it's hard to be aware of it because we're in it. Just like a fish does not know the water in which it swims. We do not know this mind in which we swim. And because of that, this is where we start to make a mistake when there's arisings in our mind or colorations of our mind. Then we think that they're us when actually they're just arisings. And to be able to see through that is pretty amazing. And by the way, this, this is uh, number 10 in the Majjhima Nikaya for any of you who read suttas, this uh, Satipatthana Sutta. So it's number 10, the middle length discourses. So, you know, we've... Sometimes I think of this as like, uh, I mean, I'm going to talk about different aspects of it, but one way to approach it is the whole like wearing rose-colored glasses thing. You know, we do that, and that's the universe that we know. And how many of us have been in a place for weeks, for months, where a certain kind of coloration of mind, like sometimes people are depressed. You know, they're depressed for a long time, or something isn't going right, and there's a certain pervasive sadness and they think that's them. You know, they can identify with it and just settle into it. And it can almost be hard to let go of it because they really get embedded in the idea that it's them. But if we can be mindful of that as it's happening, it's quite extraordinary. It's kind of like being mindful of physical pain rather than having it be us. And things change, you know, they do, right? We all know that. Emotions change, state minds, states of mind change, everything changes and changes. And to be aware of that, to be aware of the arising and passing in particular, is incredibly fruitful. And that's where we start to see 
impermanence, that everything, nothing is permanent, everything arises and passes. And we st- from that, we start to see not-self, because if everything's arising and passing, where's the static thing that we call self anyway? So that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's what mindfulness does. It helps us see that. But the sutta increases our chance of being aware of these states of mind by naming them. So that's kind of what it does. It's, it's, it's ridiculously short. It's less than a page long, this particular section of the Satipatthana Sutta, the third foundation. I used to kind of just blow past it. It was almost like, what's that about, you know, years ago? But it's really rich. And, and he, he describes different states of mind in this very comprehensive kind of way. And the more we can start to work with that, it can be really helpful in how we work with those states of mind, how we can find freedom in the middle of whatever arises. Because that's sort of the deal, right? No matter what's happening, to be free. If we just broke our leg, to be free. If our marriage just ended, to feel pain, grief, and to be free in the middle of that. Or, on the other hand, if, you know, we're someone like Jeff Bezos with an incredible yacht, and to be free there, not be stuck. That's, that gets tricky on the other side. So how do we how do we deal with gain and loss and to be free? And what the Buddha talks about, it's helpful because it helps us. It's it's almost like a like a like a path through the woods, and it helps us recognize where these opportunities of mindfulness are before they just go by. That's what's so beautiful about this Satipatthana Sutta. And in this little section on mind, he goes, as he always does, kind of, or mostly, he goes from coarser to subtler, starting from states of mind we might want to change also as part of our cultivation of wholesome states, and then into subtler subtler states that are the fruition of practice. But in all of these cases, almost like the thing to remember is none of those are ultimately us. And that's where people can get kind of messed up when they get into higher states. And then they think, oh, that's me. I am awakened. You know, they kind of get into this selfing thing. And it's just, it's a paradoxical mistake. And people get in all kinds of trouble about having some awakening and grasping onto it. It's, it, it causes problems. It causes ethical problems, all kinds of things. So you got to let go. So I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit easy because it's so short <laughs> and then kind of walk us through and see where we'll see where we land so the first section talks about you might say coarser states the buddha says and how does one abide contemplating mind as mind here one understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust One understands mind affected by hate is mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate is mind unaffected by hate. One understands mind affected by delusion is mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion is mind unaffected by delusion. And for any of you who read the suttas much, you know, they're translated by different people. So lust might be desire, something else, and some other translation or hate might be aversion. So whatever it works for you, don't get, if you find yourself sticking on a particular English word, you know, loosen it up, try another translation, learn the Pali, even better. 
<laughs> and you don't have to translate. So there you got the three poisons. That's what he's talking about. What's called the three poisons, greed, aversion, and ignorance. And we've talked in the past, and how many people have seen in Tibetan tradition this great wheel of samsara? You know what that's about? Yeah, this huge wheel, Yama is sort of, God is holding it, and we're in the very center is the three poisons. It drives the entire thing that keeps us stuck in samsara, is what it's saying. And they're personified as, oh, someone help me here, let's see, there's a snake, snake is aversion, chicken is greed, and the pig is ignorance. I think that's right. Yep, so that that's in the very center, and then around that is the six realms of existence, and then the 12 links of dependent origination. So that's the motor that keeps us trapped, is the three poisons right at the heart of it. So it's so interesting. He's right out of the blocks. He's saying, if you see your mind affected by, let's say, desire, simple way to put it, to be mindful of that as it's happening, just to be turn your mind to it when desire arises. See how you work with it. And think about your experience. You know, maybe... We're so peopley. We relate to people so much. So maybe you cross paths with this extremely attractive person or an extremely repellent person. And how was that? You know, how do you react to that? I've been down in Pike Place Market doing alms round <laughs> early in the morning, and it can be like that. You know, this very well put together tourist goes by, and there's attraction, and then this street person with scabs up their side, and they're a train wreck. And I, you know, I, I find that's the hardest. I find myself wanting to back away. In last session, we explored the Vedanas, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then the 12 links, and explored where this can take us. So, you know, like I was saying, there's con in, with the Vedanas, there's contact with the sense door, then there's pleasant, then there's tanha, which is thirst, and then clinging. It, gets, it goes one after another. And by the time we get to clinging, we're, we're our mind, because we're talking about mind, we're in a mind that's driven by desire. It's, in some sense, possessed, direct, held by desire. But you can see those steps. They, they really, I think they're exactly how it happens. Look for yourself, of course. But I think that's exactly how it happens. And, you know, there's part of what's so tricky is there's energy in that. There's a lot of energy in lust or desire. And that's what makes people keep doing it. You know, there's all this giant industry built around that in a whole many, many, many levels. And for a lot of people, just to have that buzz, just to keep following that buzz makes a life. Except where does it lead? And, of course, how does it affect the objects of desire? Two, two questions worth unpacking. And aversion also. You know, and that's actually, at least for me, that's actually harder. Because I've gotten much better at not responding particularly to attractive people, for instance. Um, but when I'm in the downtown Seattle, which I am a certain amount, that can be hard. It's it's really hard not to back away. I, I was down on the waterfront the other day. There's this little beach they've created, and I was sitting, it was very nice sitting on a rock. And there was this woman there with her little child, and that was really cute. And then this street person came in. Man, he was, he was spooky. You know, he had scabs up his side, and he was kind of twitching and yelling and all kinds of things down there and just completely... And I was a little, I mean, I stuck, I stuck around for a while. In fact, I went, before I left, I said, are you, I'm leaving. Do you want to 
you sure you want to stay here anymore? You know, and she, she seemed chill, so it was okay. But I could see how, how hard it was to want to approach this person, which I did not. I will confess. I don't know what you do. So you think about like St. Teresa. Isn't that amazing? She looked at all these incredibly compromised people in Calcutta and looked at them as Jesus. I mean, that's, that's something else. So to be mindful, I was trying to be mindful of my aversion in that moment. And I could see how I was, if I wasn't mindful, I was going to kind of concretize this guy into something awful. And he wasn't. He was a being with patterns, with I don't know what. But he was not awful. He was just a being. So to, to, to really bring mindfulness and recognize the aversion when it was happening, that really helps. And also notice in this how in the way this is structured, he's also guiding us to wisdom because he also encourages us to be mindful when the three poisons are not there. It takes up as much space in those sentences. He says, mind unaffected by lust, as mind to be mindful of mind unaffected by lust, as mind unaffected by lust. And so that's really handy, you know, to really be aware of when you're not doing that and to be aware of that there's not that grasping, that there is just presence in the middle of some kind of input that could make grasping and aversion happen. So that's, that's really beautiful because it in, inherently that's turning us towards awareness of mind right there. It's turning us away from the sensation or the experience into mind itself to be able to rest in mind because it's not as vivid. If it's unaffected by lust, it's not as punchy as when it's affected by lust. So he's kind of like nudging us to be just aware of mind in all these colorations. If we can do both, then we're less likely to get knocked down. And this also kind of suggests the constant change, right? I mean, all of us, we walk through the day and we want this, we don't want that. It goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And just to be aware of that and, and, and recognize that it's happening rather than ricocheting off of it, like window shopping. What is window shopping, you know? It's kind of checking that out and wanting this and not wanting that. Maybe you want it enough, you go in the store, or whatever you do, or go online. But it's how we navigate that. So, you know, when the mind's unaffected by the three poisons, it's not just a vacuum, but it's, it's actually an awakened state of not reacting. And to, to, to be mindful of that is something that pulls us ahead. So that's why this sutta is so powerful, because it's right down there in the core of where we live, and it has this potential to keep moving us into freedom. Because, you know, so actually you just referred to it, or, yeah, it was you. You know, things that you, oh, it was Goldie, fast boats. <laughs> he used to race sailing boats, right? You know, things that in the past really got us off. And we wanted to, we wanted to win. Did you ever want to win? It sounds like you wanted to win, right? Yes. So then we realized that's not there anymore. We just kind of saw through it. It's like, what's the point? What a treadmill that is, you know? I mean, it does make Dharma people maybe a little less interesting in some ways because they're not competing and stuff. But still, there's this freedom here. And just to, to watch, well, I think what you said was beautiful, just to watch our, our dharmic life as it unfolds and see the ways we're not trapped or conditioned or grasped or energized by things we were. 
which means we can be in great equanimity no matter what. It's not conditioned on getting the stuff, the good stuff, or avoiding the bad stuff. That's sort of this radiance that you see from highly awakened beings. The circumstances don't matter. It just doesn't matter. They're just, they're there, which is kind of what you expect, kind of what you'd want. If you encounter a great being, you'd hope that that person could connect with you, whether you were cute or not, whether you were smart or not, whether you were a train wreck that moment or not. They would just be able to connect, which, in fact, they do. Dalai Lama does. It just doesn't, the stuff we see, he doesn't see. I swear, I've watched him. And he actually, he just, he, I don't think he has any idea who's cute and who's not, or who's ugly and who's not. I don't think he even knows. He just connects with the being. It's extraordinary to watch. Which is the direction that we're going in, in this practice. And so this contemplation of mind, awareness of mind, is not only concerned with momentary states, but also the overall condition of mind. You know, over time, we become aware of underlying mind states that have developed, maybe because of our conditioning or our traumas or our lifetimes, or we don't know what. But sometimes we walk around with these underlying mind states, and to be able to start to see through them. It's really amazing. I've had some of this in my life. I had some, you know, kind of, I don't know, long-term, I won't get in the weeds, but, you know, long-term stuff that I grew up with in high school and stuff. And when I started to just see through it and realize, oh, my goodness, I've just been walking around like that, and it doesn't have to be. And it doesn't mean there's a magic switch, but we see through. Analayo, German monk, great monk, who wrote one of the great books about Satipatthana, he says, we start to discern between rapidly arising and disappearing states of mind and also more steady state mind qualities. Understood in this way, to contemplate mind unaffected by lust, anger, or delusion would also, would also include awareness of the degree to which these three unwholesome roots are no longer rooted in one's mental continuum. So does that make sense? You know, the more we become aware of them, the more we start to realize they're not us. They're not permanent. They're just, a, they're just a phenomena that's happening right then. And we can see things come and go. We can see steady state. We can kind of see through it. That's sort of what mindfulness does. Whatever it is, we see through it. We see through it. We see through it. That's the freedom that happens. And then the next pair of qualities is basically three, pretty much three or four steps in what he laid out in this tiny little thing is kind of in the arena of what we might think of as hindrances. There are qualities of mind that compromise our practice or kind of, kind of are, are difficult, are difficulties. The sutta says, one understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. So in Pali, and Pali is a traditional language of the Dharma, contracted is Sankhita and distracted is Vikita, and they're both, you know, kind of negative qualities of mind in this way. And elsewhere in the suttas and the hindrances, these refer to sloth and torpor, one of the five hindrances, and restlessness, which are two opposite poles in the five hindrances. And forgive me for two in the weeds here, but the five hindrances are a very fruitful area to be aware of because it really lays out the stuff that trips us up in practice. Sloth and torpor, you know, if you tend to just kind of nod out or get dull or get fuzzy or just not 
be present. That's like a characteristic that you have to work with or restlessness. And you just, it's really hard to sit still in your minds and you just want to get out of there and jump out of your skin. You know, those are two strong qualities that really grab people. And here he's talking about essentially the same things, but coming at it from the point of view of mind. It, this is, it's just so interesting. Because um, we often think of sloth and torpor and restlessness in kind of physical terms, because they manifest so physically. You know, these are really tactile, tactile, difficult physical experiences. People, people, uh, complain's the right word, but they express distress <laughs> about sloth and torpor all the time, that I'm falling asleep, I'm falling asleep, I, you know, I can't do this, or restlessness, I just can't, I just had to leave, I couldn't do it, you know. But it seems real, when, when people are talking about that, it's real physical, but this is sort of looking at it in an underlying mind way, and it helps us understand, helps us understand where these things come from. And we're also seeing these things as just transient qualities. They're not us. That's what this always comes back to. It's not actually ultimately us. They're qualities that arise and pass. And we can recognize, like I was saying in the very beginning, the impermanence of things. When it's arising and passing, it's not always there. So uh, uh, it helps us to be not stuck. And when we realize it's not inherently us, it's just qualities that make up a sense of self, but there's no self there. It helps us unstick. So that's kind of the beauty of this third foundation. Because just in this mindfulness, there's liberation. And just when we see these things, in the very moment of realizing they're not us, there's freedom. I get ahead of myself, and that's good. Um, yeah, so he's kind of, the Buddha's really helping us see the way this container is of this third foundation that all these things that we tend to think of as permanent, as self, they're ephemeral. They rise like mist, they fade like mist, they vanish, not to get stuck there. So these hindrances, they aren't so much problems, but they're opportunities. You know, they're objects of mindfulness. And if we can really be present with them, then they don't take us down anymore. And this is, a, as we'll see in the fourth foundation, which is basically five big sets of lists, which is slightly different. Anyway, five big sets of lists. And the first one is the hindrances and to be mindful of all these mind objects. So this is coming at the same thing in a slightly different way because it's coming at it from, from mind versus how these things manifest later on. And then the second half of this short third foundation has to do with higher states of mind. So it really is taking us up or ahead or where we're going. It's kind of amazing. Because the first half had to do with states of mind to go beyond. Sloth and torpor, greed, aversion, things things that are harmful, states of mind. And we can, you know, it's one of those deals where you can cultivate mindfulness. And you can also just train your mind a little bit. You know, you can choose to think more loving thoughts rather than more hateful thoughts. All of that. You know, we can we can work at work both sides of it. But the, the second half of it, it really helps us see where we're going, moves us toward enlightenment and ways in which moments of mind can embody aspects of enlightened mind. And, you know, the whole deal about this third foundation is all these different things can be hidden from us. 
the colorations that we walk, the moods that we're in, they could be hidden from us. And that is the same with glimpses of awakened mind. And they're real. You know, they're real. And it's really useful to recognize when glimpses happen. It helps us keep going. You know, what, 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 what would keep us going on the path if nothing ever happened? Why would we even do it? But actually, glimpses of mind, glimpses of awakening mind happen. And to recognize when that happened, that keeps us going. So there's some important things here. And the one is that these awakened qualities of mind, they're not personal. They're not me. They just are. So, so when we think of the journey to awakening, it's not like a personal accomplishment, like climbing Kilimanjaro. It's not something that I do. It's something that arises, that is revealed. There's no I that gets awakened. What's that thing? There's no... Yeah, there's no I in team. That's a different variant on the same theme, but there's... <laughs> for any of you sports people. But there's no I that gets awakened. Qualities of mind, you know, they happen, they arise during the causes and conditions, and that's part of what we're cultivating during decades of practice is causes and conditions for awakened states of mind to arise because we're getting this stuff out of the way that keeps us from seeing what's already inherently there anyway. So it's like we're unpeeling this vast onion of conditioning. But it's not me. There's no I that is awakened mind. But that's what's so beautiful about it, because if it was just, you know, if it wasn't like how could the, the great vastness of what awakened mind is, if it was I, then how could it be, how could I be great and vast? You know, we could have that conversation with ourselves. And then the other aspect of this is not I and that. When there's glimmers of awakening, they really are glimmers of awakening. And to treasure that, you know, they're little, maybe, or not. But people have, I know a lot of people who have had, and maybe a lot of you, that have had just flashes or shifts that, oh, all of a sudden things were kind of different. A lot of people have shifts about not-self, and they suddenly, on some level, kind of get it. Those things are real. Moments of insight are real. Or just little ones when we see that something we thought was permanently, inherently part of my messed-up self, I'm always going to be that way, that's who I am, and suddenly realize, no, that's not. That's just a condition. There's no, that's not me. You know, that. That's a glimmer of awakening that's really, really, really powerful. And, you know, maybe in the next moment we fall right back. But we saw something. We saw something. And that's what he's talking about here, to, to really be mindful of those glimmers when they happen. So I sort of think this section brings hope. We can be aware of when elevated states of mind have arisen and when they not. But we can perhaps rejoice when they do. The sutta says, he understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. One, I, I thought I changed all the he's. Forgive me. I always do the gender shift. I've missed it here. One understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi, because this, you know, certainly subject to interpretation, but he says that exalted mind and surpassed mind refer to higher stages of jhanas and immaterial meditative attainments. So these are pretty subtle things. Jhanas are states of concentration. Pretty subtle, and it may seem for some of us 
hard to imagine getting there. But maybe they seem far away, or maybe they're a moment away, or maybe there's a taste, a hint that you got that's actually just there. So don't, you know, don't get too sticky about it. Because if something flickers in briefly, that can be really powerful. And just because it's not us, we can be able to be aware of that when it happens without having to layer it onto a sense of self and getting stuck there. Just like, oh, that opening happened. There's freedom there. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, when a particular state of mind is present, it is noted merely as a state of mind, not identified as I or mine. Whether it is a pure state or a defiled state, a lofty state or a low state, there should be no elation or dejection, only a clear identification of the state without clinging to the desired ones or resenting the undesired ones. As contemplation deep deepens, the seemingly solid, stable mind reveals itself to be a stream of mental acts flashing in and out of being, coming from nowhere and going nowhere, continuing in sequence without pause. That sound kind of familiar when you all sit and practice? I mean, isn't that what's kind of like mostly happening most of the time? Stuff coming out of nowhere and going nowhere? That's why this is so important, because that's really what happens for us most of the time in practice. And to be able to hold that lightly and not get stuck with it, that's sort of part of what mindfulness does. Because a lot of people say, you know, it's like, oh, I, you know, when I'm meditating, all these terrible things come up and they feel badly about themselves. But to be able to just watch it come and go, it's not me, it's just what's happening. And then we can be freer and freer. But I love that is contemplation deepens the seemingly solid, stable mind we think it's solid and stable, reveals itself to be a stream of mental acts flashing in and out of being, coming from nowhere and going nowhere, continuing in sequence without pause. So if we're, you know, prone to identifying mind as ourselves, this misunderstanding gets just kind of chipped away, nicked away, eroded away by the very practice of mindfulness because we keep watching things appear and disappear and appear and disappear. Where is the concrete self there? So trying to build a sense of self is like trying to build a tower in a pot of jello. You know, it's all, it's all shaky. And, you know, we, we start to know this is really working when it can get a little scary. It gets scary sometimes when our cozy sense of self, our rigid sense of self starts to fall away. And it's a little unnerving just while it's freeing. It's unnerving because we kind of had it all nailed down, who I am. And then it kind of we realize, oh, there's just parts. It's kind of spooky when that happens. You can't find yourself. It's just parts from somewhere, parts of mind. It's all happening in mind. And the Buddha points directly to liberated mind, vimutta in Pali, with the understanding this can be a state of mind, a temporary state of mind, rather than a rigid definition. The sutta says, one understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. So that's really, you know, naming this possibility of those hints. And think about how that relates to the refrain we talked about in the very first thing. He says 13 times that through mindfulness of every aspect of phenomenal existence, all the six aspects of body, the vagueness, we find the freedom of non-clinging just from being aware of it as it comes and goes. 
And this is also the case with mindfulness of mind and all these different qualities we're exploring. Because we cling less and less. The more we see the, of the transient, non, non-concrete, non-self nature of all these arisings, we cling less and less and freedom happens more and more. And that's where glimpses happen that are real. And we don't cling to them either. And the refrain from this third foundation, this, the 13 times, on, here's the one from the third foundation that we're in, makes it clear that just through this mindfulness of qualities of mind, glimpses of awakening can happen. The sutta says, one abides contemplating in mind its nature of arising, or one abides contemplating in mind its nature of vanishing, or one abides contemplating in mind its nature of both vanishing, arising, and vanishing, or else. Mindfulness that there is mind is simply establishing one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how one abides contemplating mind as mind. Think about that one sentence. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That means anything that arises, not clinging. Independent. So that's a such a powerful tool for our practice, just to be mindful of states of mind as they arise. And no matter what arises, it's kind of like, what a relief. Could be a moment of lust, could be a moment of liberated mind. The deal is, just be mindful of that. And, you know, we can cultivate kinder states and all that, but just by being mindful, we can be free. We'll sit for a moment. <laughs> 